Um, we're actually studying the book of 1 Corinthians together as a church, and so um, those scripture journals will have that, and they'll have a place for you to be able to take notes uh, as well, uh, if you like. So um, as you could tell from our um, scripture reading this morning, uh, that we are going to be finishing up chapter 10 today, and this will kind of be the last week uh, that we'll be looking at kind of a, a particular, what I would consider to be a, a, a theme or a particular section um, or idea of what Paul's trying to get across in this letter to the church at Corinth. Um, as we've, we've seen, because next week we're going we're gonna to see a pretty major shift, because as we've seen, Paul kind of has this big overarching idea in this letter. And then there's kind of subpoints underneath of that. And the, and the big kind of overall theme is this idea of, Here's this church in, in the city of Corinth that, that Paul had planted and started, and they had kind of lost their way. And in losing their way, basically, he's writing this letter to them to say, hey, remember when I came to you and you didn't know who Jesus was and you, you didn't know who God was and you weren't walking with him? Um, remember before then, then remember what God's done in your life. And what you should see in your life and what we should be experiencing as Christians the longer we walk and know the Lord is transformation. And so he, he's writing to them to say, hey, you guys should be more transformed. You should look more like Jesus the longer you know him. And I'm hearing reports from people that this isn't necessarily the case about you. And here's some of the things I see going on inside of your church from what's being reported to me. And so one of the, the big things he tries to lay out in the early part is this idea of identity. It, Paul does that a lot. Um, theologians sometimes refer to it as the indicative and the imperative in Paul's writing where he will indicatively claim something to be true about them in Christ. And then he will give a command or an imperative on the other side of that saying, because this is true of you in Christ, live this way. And this is something we get confused with a lot as Christians. We tend to live out of the imperatives and forget we live out of our identity. We live out of God adopting us as his children, as his sons and daughters, and that we don't earn God's favor, but we obey because we are a part of his family and it's for our good and his glory. And so he spends the first part of, of this letter to the, to the church of Corinth saying to them, live out of that identity and, and live out of, a, of an identity that's centered in Jesus. Live out of one that seeks to make much of him and what he's done for you. Because what was happening there is they had fallen into this trap or this, this cycle of looking for different celebrities to follow. So some would say, well, I like this preacher who came and was a pastor here for a while. And others would say, well, I like Paul. Others would say that they liked Peter, but they were basically kind of getting into tribalism centered around these various kind of theological lines or, or much more um, in reality, lines of celebrity and which maybe speaker they appreciated the most. And so he spends the first part kind of just saying, hey, get rid of that. Let's go back to those foundational pieces I laid for you when I first arrived in Corinth, because that's kind of the uniting feature of, of us as followers of Jesus, that our identity is rooted in Christ, not in, in who our pastor is, not in who our teacher is, you know, not in uh, what theological camp you might align yourself in. No, we're ultimately in Christ because that is our savior and king as Christians and followers of Jesus. And then he moves into 
this relational component of living that out. So when he starts out reminding them of our identity, he's then going to move into this relational idea of, okay, this disunity that has broken out among you started with this, these various tribes or factions over these various leaders, but it's now manifesting itself in various ways. And God cares deeply about unity. He cares deeply about the way we love and care for one another. You know, Jesus himself said that we would be known not by our theology, not by having the right answers or being intellectually intelligent. No, he said we would be known by our love for one another, and that's how they would see him. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter to them, is encouraging them to seek unity with one another. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, one of the key tenets or hallmarks of living that out properly is to surrender freedoms, love one another well, and flee idolatry so that we might enjoy fellowship with one another. And so first part, identity. Second part, relational strength. Next week, we're gonna move into a new theme that's gonna kind of center around this idea of how we make much of Jesus once we've got our identity sorted out, once we've kind of fixed the relational disunity and disharmony inside the church. And then he's gonna move into this idea of how, right, the corporate worship gathering, what we're doing right now here this morning is, a, is supposed to be a place that builds one another up the same way that we do so in our personal relationships with one another. But as you, this morning though, let's finish up on this idea of living in such a way to make much of Jesus and how relationally, if we're seeking unity and love to one another, that this should then be filtered through this lens or this idea of how we introspectively look inside and examine ourselves, which should lead us to placing others before ourselves. Now, as you've probably guessed, especially as you read or heard Kim read the, the scripture to us this morning, he's going to return to this issue, this particular issue that he keeps talking about over and over and over again of eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, it's easy to sit here and think, why is he talking about this so much? Anybody a little tired of hearing about it yet? Okay, there's Gabe is honest enough. Thank you. Okay, Brett. The rest of you guys are like, I'm not allowed to say I don't like something in the word of God, right? Like I'm not, right, I'm, I'm not over it yet. But it, it's easy to kind of think, okay, this issue doesn't plague us in 2022. Anybody have an argument about eating meat sacrificed to idols with somebody this week? One person, okay. Bryce, I can't wait to hear that story later, man. <laughs> All right. Everyone else is like, no, not really something that we, we, we regularly struggle with or deal with. But even though this isn't maybe a particular issue that we deal with as a church today, it is, however, right, important for us to take a step back and think, hold on a second. There are issues plaguing our lives all over the place. Right, whether it's masks, vaccines, politics, music, theological debates. And if we 
look out 2,000 years from now and someone hears a sermon from a pastor in a church in the U.S. or somewhere around the world and, and hears how that pastor or those people inside that church are trying to encourage one another and reads their letter or their words to one another, they might also think, well, why were they wrestling with this? It's kind of bizarre, right? And, and it's important for us to remember that, that even though culturally we maybe don't deal with the same issue, that, it, that the church at Corinth was wrestling with, it was a very, very real issue to, for them because it had cultural implications and it had relational implications and it had gospel implications. And in the midst of this, that for us to take a step back and look at it and say, hey, well, we, we may not have that particular issue, but the principles of how we approach that issue apply to many of ours here today. And so remember what Paul has said about this issue so far, starting all the way back in chapter eight up into where we're at this morning in chapter 10, right? He's told them that theologically, they are free to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. He's made that abundantly clear to them. Hey, you're free to do this. You can do it whenever you want. There's nothing in it that is sin for you. You're, you're free to do it. But then he qualified that by saying, inside the church, if there was someone that you were with inside the church and you were sharing a meal together and some person felt like it was not appropriate for you to do so, that your conscience should be bound in such a way that you would be willing to lay down your right or your freedom to enjoy that meat for their sake so as to not offend them, so as to not upset them, so as to not cause them to feel like they might be sinning, that you lay down your freedom for their sake to love them and to serve them. And so today, he's gonna kind of move into one last area where this issue might arise. And he's gonna talk about, well, what happens when you're invited into someone's home to eat meat who is not a part of the church, who is not a part of the family of God? And he's gonna tie this in kind of with two main ideas that are gonna summarize everything he said through chapters eight through 10. He's gonna bring these, these ideas of issues of conscience that the Bible maybe doesn't clearly say, yes, do that or don't do that. How we can approach this as believers and followers of Jesus and seek unity with one another and make a decision based on that. So the first one's gonna be this. He's going to remind those in Corinth that everything they do should be done to the glory of God. He doesn't specify what things they are, but he says that everything we do should be done to the glory of God. And the second caveat he's gonna put on that is that everything we do should be done with serving others in mind, not with doing what we want to do. That we would do something to not cause them to stumble, but instead build them up. So look at verse 23 with me and let's kind of unpack this and see if we can't land this thing and, and understand really what Paul's been trying to say over the last several weeks. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now you'll notice in your Bible that line, all things are lawful, is in quotations. Everybody see that in, in your scripture? Yeah, okay. So this was likely a slogan that the Corinthians were throwing out amongst one another. 
You know, they, they, and the thought behind the slogan kind of went something like this. If we are really free in Christ, then we are free to participate in what we want, what we want to do. So stop trying to inhibit, it, inhibit my freedom. Stop trying to prevent me from enjoying my, my freedoms. And there's lots of parallels. I mean, gosh, we could talk about this for hours, right? There's lots of parallels that we could equate this to in our own day and time. But I want you to stop and just pause and think about this for a second because Paul's clearly trying to create a distinction between the slogan, all things are lawful, and reality. And I want you to think for a minute just about politics, and I promise we're not going to go into political ideology, so just bear with me. But think about politics. How many of you guys, if you think hard enough, you can think of one of the presidential slogans in the last 10 years, right? Most of the room, right? Because that's kind of the point of slogans. They have you think about a particular catchphrase or tagline or something kind of to, to rally around. Now think about the one that you thought of and, and, and just for a second, say it to yourself. And then I want you to raise your hand if there's a ton of information in that slogan that you find to be super helpful. Anybody? Right, see, we, we'll, we'll say things about with these various slogans, but do they really tell us anything? Do they really unveil any information to us? They become, you know, rallying cries, but are they actually helpful? You know, slogans, the, the word slogan can actually be traced all the way back to a Gaelic term. And, and what, what was happening is these armies would come together and they would shout things together to kind of pump one another up, you know? So for those of you guys that played sports, sometimes you're not really ready to play. And so one of the ways to get ready to play is you just start screaming at one another and yelling things. At least that's the way my football team was. That's how you kind of get the courage up to hit people for no real reason or purpose or intention other than to move a piece of leather up and down a football field. Again, I love football. Not a ton of purpose behind it, though, if we're really honest with ourselves, right? But these guys that would go off to wars, they would yell these things together, and they kind of became these, these battle cries, and over time, they became slogans and things that people said. But the funny thing about them is if you actually research the terminology a little bit, slogans became kind of a joke throughout human history because what they actually said they were was the cry of the dead. Because what was happening is they would cry these things out and then immediately fall in battle. And so the term over, you know, until about probably the last century or so has really had a derogatory connotation to it because slogans often reduce discourse and inquiry down to a tagline that offers little information. And if we think back to what Paul is quoting in Corinth here, they're saying all things are lawful, but is there any practical application or teaching coming from that tagline? No. And Paul's saying, okay, well, hold on, man. I got to take a step back then <laughs> and kind of address because theologically speaking, all things are permissible. I hear you on that one. Yep, here we go. Good, good to go. But let's take that to its logical conclusion. All things are lawful. Are they helpful? All things are lawful or permissible. Do they build up? I'm... I'm I'm not confident, and my grandfather's not living anymore for me to be able to ask him, but he may have, in fact, stolen this line he said to me all the time. 
um, from the Apostle Paul. But he used to say, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Now, granted, I was usually doing something pretty stupid to elicit that type of response from my grandfather. But if we kind of break down what Paul is saying as he writes the church here, he's saying, hey, look, just because, just because you're free to do something doesn't mean it's smart to do it. It doesn't mean it's wise to do it. And this has multiple application, but Paul's primary application is this idea of relational fellowship inside of the church. Hey, just because you're free to eat the meat doesn't mean that you should because your participation in that actually may bring more harm to you than your freedom to enjoy it. It may actually create disunity, loss of friendships, loss of fellowship, fighting. Is that worth it? Some of you guys that really like bacon are like, I don't know. It might be. But he's saying that we should take a step back and really, really think through this. As the theologian Richard Pratt said, he said, freedom in Christ must be balanced by a desire to build up and benefit other Christians. He says that, that what we're seeing here and what Paul is talking about is our freedoms are only as good as our ability to then use them to love and build others up. And if freedom run amok is centered on self and self-fulfillment, it loses its ability to love well and make much of Jesus. And so what, so what do we take away from, from what Paul's saying here? I think it should cause us to think critically if we're professing followers of Jesus. We should ask ourselves questions of, is what I'm participating in productive? Is this life-giving? And when I say, is this life-giving, I don't just mean to you, I mean to those around you. Right? When you think all the way back to the book of Genesis, right, where where God cre creates Adam and creates Eve out of Adam and, and, and sets them in the garden to work and subdue the planet and to be fruitful and multiply, right? In, in our very creation, there is this aspect that God has created in us where we are to approach life not self-centered, but to make much of God and to subdue the earth and rule as if God is on the throne right here and now in front of us. And in that, right, we, we don't just seek our own self-interest, but we seek the interests of others because that makes much of God and his love towards us. And so we take a step back then and we look at this and we say, well, is this life-giving to me? Because some of us need to do that. Some of us choose to participate in things that aren't even good for us. Well, I'm free to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like my wife used to say to me, I mean, you are free to eat Taco Bell at one in the morning. Should you eat Taco Bell at one in the morning? You're in your mid-30s. No. Right? As we, as we parse through these things, we ask ourselves questions like, is this helpful? And if not, why do it? And then he then moves into a specific scenario that the Corinthians should think through in regards to this, this partaking of idol meat. Right, in verses 25 through 26, he says that Christians are free to eat the meat in the markets. 
right? And he quotes Psalm 24, one there where the, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? So he's making sure that they don't lose this theological truth that we're free to do these things. But then when he gets to verse 27, he's like, but if you're invited into the home of an unbeliever, and they bring meat in from the market that had been sacrificed to idols. You are free to eat it. But if they raise an objection and ask, hey, as a Christian, are you supposed to do this? You should abstain from it, even if you're free, so as to not create confusion. Now, notice he doesn't say, hey, spend the next six hours teaching them theologically why you're free to do it. Now, what does he say? Yeah, it's just easier for you to abstain. Because clearly that person thinks that most Christians aren't allowed to participate in this. So the easier way is for you to lay down your rights and freedoms to show that your love for God and others is more important to you than your freedom. And there's all sorts of applications we could throw on this, but they kind of like the, a really easy one is alcohol for many Christians and many non-Christians is a matter of conscience. And I would say that, that biblically speaking, there's no prohibition for partaking and drinking alcohol in the scripture. But there are people that I am around and associate with that I would never consider having a beer or a glass of wine around them, not because I'm not free to do so, but the, 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 the fallout from that decision would not love them well or build them up. if they want to have a conversation about it and ask me about it, like by all means, we, we can enter into that space and talk about freedom in Christ and, and enjoying things responsibly to the glory of God, something we're going to talk about here in just a second. But if an objection is raised, Paul says, look, what they're doing is questioning whether you're free to actually do that or not. And if they ask, they're likely viewing it as wrong for you as a Christian to do so, honor that and choose not to. Lay down your freedom, serve them, so that, look at what he says there, they might be built up. Very rarely do we like use that kind of language with one another, right? But God actually wants us to be in community with one another, to gather together as the church, to be with other people, to encourage one another and build one another up. That's, that's why we gather together. So we might encourage one another, keep going. I believe in you and so does God. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's make much of him together. So often, unfortunately, we do such a good job of tearing one another down and thinking that that ultimately builds up. And what we're really doing is pulling attention away from what God has called us to do, which is to use our freedom to build one another up. And so this, he brings this first point and he kind of lands it and he says, hey, look, everything that we've talked about regarding this meat sacrifice to idols can be summed up under two things. One you are free to participate in it, but only do so if it's going to love on others, serve them well, and build them up. And two, that's what he gets to starting in verse 31. Look at that with me. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
How many of you guys have heard that statement before in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, it's like a super famous passage in Scripture, right? And sometimes it gets lo- the, con- the context of it gets lost a little bit. But Paul basically, from the context here, has created his own slogan, one that's actually usable, one that actually communicates something. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Right? This might be considered Paul's thesis that every aspect of a Christian's life has the potential to honor God. Think about that for a second. Everything you do has the potential to make much of Jesus. A nap? Anybody? Yes and amen on that? You can take a nap to the glory of God. You can watch Gator football to the glory of God. Where's Isaiah Fetterman? You can play pickleball to the glory of God. Right, this is, this is Paul's kind of encouragement to us. And, and there's, a, there's a theological term for this. It's called Christian hedonism, right? It's this idea that, that anything you do can be done in such a way if enjoyed properly and with worshiping Jesus in mind that it can bring glory to God because you can enjoy it to his glory, right? This is where John Piper's famous statement came from, right? That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Like how great would it be to enjoy a brownie? Like Jesus, thank you. Mm. Mm. Right? Cobbler, every time. Blueberry cobbler gets me every time. Lord, you have done it again. And I'm here to thank you. Right, but oftentimes where this gets messed up, right, is we take these good things that God has given us and we worship them instead of him for giving them to us. And this is where we lose track of what's going on here. You know, Paul kind of talks about this idea over in Philippians chapter one. Let me, let me read this to you real quick. He says, starting in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, and then this is this famous line, right? Most of us quote this line, but we have no idea what Paul's actually talking about. Most of the time, actually, we use this verse in terms of suffering and how to encourage us like, well, we shouldn't really care about our lives that much, which is, not really what Paul's communicating. I mean, he is to an extent, but what he's really communicating, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the point he's making there is if, if I can honor God in anything that I do, I wanna do that. If I can eat meat and make much of what Jesus has done for me, I wanna do it. If I can choose not to eat the meat, and make much of Jesus. Well, then that's what I wanna do. I wanna approach every aspect of my life, whether in life or in death, and I wanna measure it up whether I can make much of Jesus because he is worth it. And I would submit that a lot of the disunity, a lot of the argumentation, 
a lot of the hurt feelings that we tend to experience inside of the church, the body of Christ, is not so much centered around the idea of whether something is permissible or not, but whether or not we've done the hard work on whether we should do it to the glory of God or not. Whether we've really examined our own hearts to say, hey, is this going to honor Jesus and serve and build someone else up? Because it appears to me from what Paul is trying to encourage in the church at Corinth here is that he's not so much worried about whether or not they're allowed to do something. He's worried about whether or not they want to make much of Jesus in it or not, whether they want to serve others or not. And look at the practical kind of outworking of this idea, according to Paul. All right, he says, well, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And look what he says starting in verse 32. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Right, see, see, I love what he says there, especially in verse 32. Right? He says, give no offense. By the way, is there any wiggle room for that? He's like, hey, you should not be trying to offend people. You should not be trying to create disunity. You should not be creating arguments. By the way, I'm, I'm like preaching to myself right now. Some of you guys know me. I love to debate. And Paul takes a step back and he's like, mm-mm, give no offense. And then who does he list there? He lists Jews. He lists Greeks. And he lists the church. He uses those three groups to say to us, everyone. Right? The idea would have been, hey, we don't fight with our culturally Jewish brothers and sisters. We don't fight with the Greeks, which kind of became a, a, a junk drawer term for the goyim in the Hebrew, which would have been like nations or Gentiles. He's saying everyone, everyone who's non-Jewish. And then he qualifies it finally with the church. It's basically saying, hey, as you live your life and you make decisions, you should be always centered around this idea of bringing glory to God and serving others. He says, I, he says your enjoyment of God is for his glory. And part of the way you do that is going out of your way not to offend other people, not to create obstacles and barriers relationally with other people and to serve him and point to him, that he attempts to please everyone, not accepting everything, but living peaceably with them, not seeking his own advantage, not centered around his own desires and pleasures, but instead that he might witness to the glory of God. He's saying, if I find my joy in Jesus, if I find my satisfaction in him, and in that serve others and enjoy things to his glory, that will inevitably cause others to be compelled as to why I'm living my life this way. 
know, there was a couple months ago, I was hanging out with uh, a neighbor of mine and Paul in the church, and we were um, brewing beer together. And we were on my neighbor's back patio that afternoon, and I'd hung out with him a couple times at this point, and he said something to me that was really, really fascinating. He was, Kevin, like, I know you're a pastor, and I, I know you're a Christian, and obviously that's something important to you, and I hear you talk to your kids, but, like, you seem so chill. And, like, you're drinking a beer with me right now. Like, why is that? And but <laughs> the moment he did that as a pastor, I'm like, gotcha. <laughs> right, but there was something about choosing Right, to step into his world, to love him, to not be judgmental, to not compromise. One of the things I said, I was like, dude, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Like, they said it was the best wine, so let's find some good wine. But it became this opportunity where there was something about, right, the way I was living my life, the way Paul was living his life, then my neighbor was like, wait a minute, like I've, I've had all this interaction with Christians before. Something's different. Like, like why is that? Right? And Paul's whole thesis here is, is that if we live our lives in such a way to do everything to the glory of God and serve others, we won't have to come up with these crazy evangelism strategies. We won't have to write books. We won't have to create models. We'll just be loving people well, and they're going to be like, hey, most people, they're not doing this. What's different about you? I love Jesus because he first loved me. I live my life for his glory because he's worth it. As Paul says, right, for me to live is Christ, is for him. To die is gain. He's not talking about his physical death. He's talking about dying to his own preferences, his own freedoms, his own rights, to lay those down for the cause of the gospel so that some that do not yet know Jesus might come to know him, they might experience him, they might experience the freedom that comes from, from knowing him. And then he finishes with this line in, in, in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I see Paul's final call to the church is to follow his example. Not, not because he's amazing, because really he's just saying, hey, I stole my strategy from Jesus. Took it, took it straight out of his playbook. Right, we read this a couple weeks ago. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because what he's saying there is like, just because he existed in, in the holies of holies in the heavens with God the Father, he did not consider that something he had to hold on to at all costs. But then he did this instead but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who? To the glory of God the Father. Jesus sets the example for us. He came and lived his life, preached, performed miracles, healed people, followed God's law, died on the cross on our behalf, both to save us, but to save us because it was the Father's will for him and he glorified the Father in all that he did. And Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus because I seek to bring glory to the Father just as Jesus did. To serve others and point people to him. Basically, Paul wants us as the church to center our lives around imitating our Savior. Right, when we think about the earlier chapters when he was talking about you are not of Apollos, you're not of Paul, you are not of Peter, right? What he was saying is, is, is all of those men are only as good as their Savior. Right, we live in a time and in an age where celebrity is just as popular now as it was 2,000 years ago. We all have our favorite preachers or, or pastors to listen to on podcasts. We all have our favorite Bible study leaders or our favorite people to follow on Twitter or our favorite podcasts that we listen to and we kind of make ourselves little mini disciples of them. And Paul's whole point is, is imitating these people is only valuable if it imitates our Lord. If you find somebody in your life that's worth imitating, it's because they imitate Jesus, not something else. And if they're not imitating Jesus, it's, it's not worth imitating. If it's not after his example, it's not worth imitating. That in imitating Jesus, we seek to know that we are free in Christ to enjoy so many things to the glory of God, but we don't hold on to that freedom or that right because Jesus didn't hold on to his freedoms or his rights. He laid them down. That we, that we know that to be true and we surrender it and lay it down for the good of others just like Christ did for us. That we seek the good of our neighbor just as Jesus sought our good. To seek and save that which was lost. And we live our lives like Jesus to glorify God and make much of him. Church, that's our calling. To know our king, to seek the good of others, and to glorify him. To quote Pastor Boyd Bettis from yesterday at the men's retreat. Had a great time at that, by the way. For those of you guys that made it out, it was a good time. He just goes, Christianity is actually easy. We just make it hard. It's just all about finding our identity in the one who's, who is worth putting our identity and our trust in and then seeking to glorify him. 
That's it. We overcomplicate it. I want to finish our time this morning by looking at Ephesians chapter 4 together. Looking at what Paul says to encourage the Ephesian church as they're living out life with one another. Starting in verse 32 of Ephesians 4. He says, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. And wouldn't that be radical if we did that and did that well? Then look at what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God. Not of me, right? not of your favorite pastor, not, as a, not a, a, of some celebrity. Be imitators of God. As what? As beloved children. Right? He's like, hey, you get to imitate your dad. You are already his children. I use this illustration with you guys all the time. Right? One of the things Jackie and I have to commonly do, especially with my oldest son, because um, when he does something wrong and we go to discipline him, he's probably harder on himself than we are on him in, in disciplining him. And one of the things that Jackie and I have to do with him all the time is like, dude, you screwed up. But you're my son. And I love you. And yet we have standards in this house and, and you violated those standards. But your performance in those standards don't earn my love. That's already there. I love you. You couldn't do anything to take that away from me, no matter how hard you tried, right? And even if I were to denounce you, a simple blood test would show that you're still my son. Right? As God is saying to us, right, the, the test results are in. Because of the work of Christ, you are my child. And I'm not undoing the results. I'm not undoing the DNA that you are children of God. But in that, right, imitate him. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Right, our culture has hijacked the word love. We have no idea what that word means anymore. The Greeks were smart enough to at least have four different words for it, right? In English, it's like, I love my dog. I love my wife. I love food. All three of those have very different meanings. There would be different applications of those. So Paul makes sure, though, to, to unveil to us what kind of love he means here. He points to the love of God, sacrificial, others-focused, building them up and serving. And we love others because we are loved by God. We serve others because Christ first served us.